wildfires are in the news again. This time, they're mostly all across Canada. A new critically acclaimed documentary film from Journeyman Pictures titled Elemental Reimagine Wildfire takes a look at the recent slew of deadly fires in Oregon, California, Cal- Colorado, Washington, Montana, Arizona, and New Mexico. And joining us now are its co-writers, director filmmaker Trip Jennings and producer Ralph Blomers. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having us. Hey now, there. Now you Good both- to be here. You're the co-writer, so you both know the answers to any questions I'm going to ask. Uh, I'll ask one of you a question, and then let's try to alternate or or keep it as much under control as possible. I don't want to prevent either of you from saying something you want to say, okay? Sounds great. Uh, Tripp, in, in this film, you talk to the top experts in the country. Is there general agreement among them? Uh, I, you know, there's... There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of um, even sort of seemingly contradictory things about fire. And so one of our biggest tasks was to sort of find where there's a lot of agreement, right? And that's what we tried to, uh, you know, come up with and sort of uh, communicate to viewers in this film. Like, where is there agreement and where is there, um, you know, potential path forward that seems to be really well supported by science and by, you know, a lot of peer reviewed papers and a lot of the experts out there. So, yeah, so that's what you see. I mean, we did we uh, we did kind of find those things where there's agreement. Well, Ralph, you talked to members of the Yurok tribe in California. Have Native Americans who've been dealing with forest fires for thousands of years developed methods for dealing with them? It's been wonderful to get to know uh, Margot Robbins, who's the executive director of the Cultural Fire Management Council and the Ur- and with the Yurok, um, and how they use fire on their homeland. So, for example, Elizabeth Azuz, who's also in the film and part of the Cultural Fire Management Council, heads up the Elder and Community Burn Program, and they're actually you know have wildfire prepared homes, and they burn in and around them. So and they, they set the fire. fires. They fight. They they fight fire by lighting fire and burning the fine material in and around their homes, and this is a practice that they've, you know, been using since humans were on this landscape since the retreat of the ice sheets in the Pleistocene. Now, where fire is used on the landscape and how it can be used varies depending on the ecosystem. There in a coastal. Uh, redwood with uh, forest with really steep canyons. The topography is super challenging there, um, but they, you know, they've had zero escapes. Um, they have, you know, they have intermittent rains. They have a lot more to work with, and it's very remote, um, so it's particular. But they are out in the in the nation and even abroad with what they're doing and helping people bring back and make the old the new again on the landscape and that ancient wisdom and experience that comes from, you know, intimately lo- knowing the land versus uh, compare that with a remote sensing scientist that looks through satellites at things. They are on the ground working with fire. And what we see is those landscapes where there's fire, whether it's wildland fire or prescribed or cultural fire, when fire intersects with that, um, that's where it really slows down. So they burn the perimeter around their live their dwellings as a way of protecting the dwellings. Yeah, that's exactly what they're doing with their 
uh, cultural burn program and their elder burn program, their, their home safety program. They're also, you know, thinning along roadways and bringing fire along roadways to make safe routes for exit if needed. Um, so they're, you know, they're doing the home outward with fire. I'm not sure that uh, other people would be willing to burn the gardens and, and other things around their homes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. This is Trip. Yeah, um, go ahead. You know, it, it's... By the way, we'll recognize your voices. Uh, Don't yeah. sound the same. So it's a, it's a strategy that's... Um, I think we can learn a lot from the Yurok, but that doesn't mean that we are going to necessarily exactly recreate what they're doing in other places. Like, you're right. It's not um, appropriate for a suburb, you know, in L.A. or in Boulder County, Colorado, um, you know, or, or even sort of um, suburban areas near the Pine Barrens in, in New Jersey, right? Um, so I think that what we have to do is, you know, take the lessons that we can apply to other landscapes and other situations that are so powerful. And for me, filming with the Iraq, I mean, I learned so much about fire, so much about the rela a relationship with um, the land that they had for so long. Um, and one of the most important things is th that I learned is that just fire is a part of these landscapes. Fire is here to stay. Fire is not leaving. And so we have to develop a culture and a practice and policies around how we deal with that in, in you know, accepting it as an important part of every terrestrial ecosystem that's out there, um, rather than saying, oh, we'll just send the firefighters to put it out. Firefighters are extremely important in, you know, as we move into a hotter, drier um, world and West especially. But what can we do? What can we add to the situation to decrease the risk so that when fires come, you know, we, we will be safer? And, and I think that's really, that's the lesson I got from the Iraq. And that's the, what we tried to find in the film. I said that you spoke to some of the leading experts in the field, not just uh, Margot Robbins, the Yurok cultural advisor, but also Dr. Beverly Law of Oregon State University, Dr. Jack Cohn, a scientist who was with the U.S. Forest Service and others. Do they all agree that global warming has become the major factor? Well, there is a huge climate signal with how much fire is occurring on the landscape. So back in the 10s, 20s, and 30s, when we had the Dust Bowl and we had a dry uh, climate period, we had no, a lot more We didn't more have fire many fires the then. Yeah, we, we had about, if not in some years, more fire than we're currently having, hmm. right? And so the, the challenge with, with fire and with things that are longer than our human time scales, we're like, oh, we're having more fire than ever before. And we're thinking back to the 1980s hmm. um, when, you know, we were still in the, at the tail end of a cool, wet climate period. So, yes, there's a huge climate signal, wind and drought. Many of these big destructive fires, whether they're on the front range of Colorado or in the mountains of Colorado or in California or in Oregon, they're dry east winds in Oregon. They're uh, dry winds uh, coming through California or they're high pressure systems dropping on the Rockies and creating, you know, 60, 80, 100 mile an hour wind events. And then you got an ignition in there with a dry wind. And so you're basically talking about a wind event with fire in it. And that's where you get the big fires that move long distances. And then if within that you get homes igniting, then you, you know, you get 
homes becoming the fuel to burn other homes. And Jack Cohen's research in the centerpiece of the film is really, how do we live with fire? So if you know people in fire country, they're worried about losing insurance right now, or they're losing insurance, or they're worried about how their home can burn down. And what we've really presented, the deepest part, I think, of the film is, yes, we need to have a more nuanced relationship and make peace with fire. And that comes through preparing our homes so that the odds of our homes igniting is reduced really significantly. And that's really the thing that people really respond to the most in fire survivor communities or fire at risk communities in the West. We've screened at a couple hundred shows. We've been to many of those for question and answer. And that's what people really want to understand. Now on the East Coast, you all are dealing with smoke. Smoke's a big part of our summers, right? And having a smoke kit is a reality for us and having air filters in our house is a reality for us because we're going to continue to have smoke and it's climate related so as we have increased you know amplified winters we also have amplified summers with drought and we have these wind events and drought events even stretching into the winter months like the marshall fire that's the opening scene from colorado that was a winter drought in an area that was mostly open space with grasses and the window for them to do prescribed fire shrank and they weren't able to do it. They had a wind event, they had a couple ignitions um, and the community burned. And that community wasn't even in an area mapped at high risk. So I think that yes, absolutely, there is a very strong climate signal in how much fire we have on the land but also kind of the weather events that we get associated with increased temperatures. Well, in our area, we saw a major increase in pollutants recently because of the Canadian fires. How long does air quality remain poor after the fires have gone out? Well, I mean, fires smolder for a long time, right? So the fires that we're thinking about in Canada and Alberta and British Columbia and the Northwest Territories, um, those fires, they will be smoldering and burning most of the summer, right? Like we even see fires um, over winter at times, you know, it'll start raining out here in Oregon and we'll get a little uh, puff of smoke in the springtime when it gets dry and windy again. So, I mean, you know, the bulk of the smoke is really going to come during those big wind events when you have, uh, low humidity and a lot of wind, right? And when that wind turns off, yeah, you're looking at a week, 10 days after that, it will it'll really start to dissipate. And it takes a while to get as far as somewhere like New York or even North Carolina, um, as we saw. But, and, and, you know, as I'm sure you all remember, um, a couple of years ago in 2020, you know, the smoke from wildfires in California and Oregon, um, even Colorado made it all the way to the East coast. So as we're talking about, you know, the actual homes at risk, you know, you all are experiencing the fact that this is um, more of a national problem, right? International problem. Um, and I, you know, I think that's why we need to be prepared for um, smoke with smoke kits as Ralph mentioned. Um, and, you know, prepare our homes, prepare our communities with smoke shelters when we need to, especially in places like the West, but even in places like New York. Well, what about wildlife? We can, they can't get smoke kits. Um, you know are they, they affected can. mostly by the pollutants or other factors of a wildfire? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting with wildlife. I mean, 
I think a lot of our beliefs um, around wildlife responding to wildfire were formed by watching Bambi. And, you know, we remember Bambi fleeing, uh, fleeing from the flames or we see news reports about animals that succumb to fire. I mean, the reality is these animals are adapted to even big, intense fires. Hmm. Certainly they can be overcome in some of these events if they're in, a let's say, a dense tree plantation. When it burns, it might burn faster than they can, you know, they can get out of there. But the birds, they fly away and they probably go somewhere else. Um and that maybe they go try to go to a place with less smoke but um the ground mammals go into the ground and the larger you know mammals they run and they can run faster really than most fires and the vast majority of wildlife in terms of <clears throat> whether they succumb to the fire and the flames no um, and that's what we document and show in the film we spent the last five years going specifically to the most severely burned areas and setting up wildlife and time-lapse photography to sort of show people what's going on in the forest. With respect to smoke, uh, there's actually a lot of research out there that the fine particles, the PM 2.5, as it's called, you know, those enter the bloodstream. Uh, there's big health impacts. You know, in some cases, it's just a pulse and it's a couple few days and then it moves out. And folks there on the East Coast, you know, if you want to look at really good smoke maps, there's a great one out of Canada called Fire Smoke. Dot .ca for Canada, firesmoke.ca, and it predicts out three days, hmm. roughly, of what the smoke is going to look like and where that's going to show up. And you can zoom in pretty granular and see where you are on the map. Um, but if it's, you know, hanging out uh, because of your topography at 400, 500, 600 parts per million for a couple months, that's, you know, that's a chronic thing that's probably going to affect your long-term health. And there's some communities in the West that are dealing with that. Um, so it's a, it's a real challenge and it's really a challenge for people that work outside. Let's say you're a farmer and you're going to do your harvest and your harvest and your fruit is fruiting up right during smoke season. You're in for a real problem. Um, so there's some serious challenges. I would just say for folks in the East Coast, you know, we hope that our film will give you a deeper understanding about wildfire. And so when you're hearing, let's say, the political discourse or the short form media coverage of it, you'll have a better sense of uh, what promises that are being what the promises that are being made to you around what we can do, which ones are real solutions and which ones are not real solutions and just sort of give you more situational awareness so you can maybe chill a little bit more uh, about fire and feel like like you have a deeper understanding, I think. Um, but, you know, this is a the smoke one is one that is kind of immutable. Right. We're going to have fire. We're going to have smoke. It's going to settle in particular areas. And I really believe that we just have to be ready for it, just like we're ready for rain or snow in the winter months. We're talking about a new documentary called Elemental, Reimagine Wildfire, with uh, its co-writers, director, filmmaker Trip Jennings, and producer Ralph Blomers. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I mentioned that you spoke with uh, Dr. Jacques Cohn, who was a scientist who uh, was with the U.S. Forest Service. Um, 
Now, the U.S. Forest Service is over a century old. How effective has it been in dealing with these issues over the course of its history? Well, the Forest Service, you know, really got its mandate um, when firefighters, when uh, wildfires started to blow up, um, kind of during that same era around the Dust Bowl, right? We started to see some really large... Well, yeah, then, yeah, there and that's been it, many you know, firefight, wildfires before the Dust Bowl was created. Of course, yeah. I mean, we had you know, fire has been part, and even large fires, even large high intensity fires, have been a part of every major ecosystem in the United States since you know time yeah, immemorial. Um, so, so fire has always been a part of it, right? But we've had periods that have been hotter and drier, and cooler and wetter, um, and so. You know, in that in the teens, twenties, thirties, we were seeing a lot, a lot of fire. And you know what happened in the forties is, as we talk about in the film, um, is people came back from World War II. All of a sudden, there was a lot of surplus equipment that could be put to work uh, doing things like putting out fires, right? And so that was where the firefighting effort, largely by the Forest Service, became mechanized and professionalized and became effective. Um, that also dovetailed, it happened to be at the same time as a, a cooler, wetter period. The Pacific Decadal Oscillation, if you want to get real nerdy about it, um, in the Northwest, even into the um, sort of Intermountain West, um, got, you know, it was, it was wetter. There was just enough moisture each summer. The fires didn't get quite as big. And we had this suddenly professionalized firefighting apparatus of the Forest Service, right? Um, there was a lot of grazing in the Southwest as well, um, which helped tamp down fires. So for like 40 years, it seemed like the Forest Service, and they were, you know, this is true, the Forest Service was doing an amazing job at stopping fires. They stopped, you know, fires went from 10 million or more, 20 million even, potentially acres a year down to like, one, two, three, four, five million a year, um, which is a huge decrease. And since the 80s, when we've started to see a handful of things, increased urbanization, increased um, roads, recreation, power lines, mines, logging in the backcountry, all of that, we've seen more ignitions. And that's coincided with this hotter, drier period, right? And it seems like, although we see a lot of moisture in the winter in the West right now, we did last uh, winter, this past winter, um, we're still we're still very likely to get those long, dry periods. And we're we're you know as we move into this warmer world, um, longer droughts are going to be part of our reality. And so what we're finding in, in this long history of the Forest Service fighting fire is that the tactics that we developed during a cool, wet period um, are just not serving us anymore. We can't count on the Forest Service to put out all fires. And that's a very difficult message for firefighters. Um, and, you know, in the film, we talk to some of the most advanced firefighting organizations in the world, such as, you know, L.A. County Fire Department. Um, and Cal Fire, uh, you know, also in some of the largest, most advanced, most well-funded organizations fighting fire in the world, right? And it's hard for them to say, hey, there are actually limits on what we can do, right? But um, 
what one piece of feedback we've heard from fire professionals, first responders, firefighters is thank you for creating a film that helps us create the uh, communicate the limits of what we can do because we need the public's engagement. We need to make this a team effort. Right. And so that that's, um, so that, so to get back to your, the answer to your question is the forest service kind of up to the task. Well, the other thing that the forest service has been doing for the last 30, 40 years has been working on vegetation management. The theory being that if we take enough vegetation out of the forests, less homes will burn. And over that period, we've seen a 10,000% increase in homes destroyed. So at this point, you know, we have to iterate. We have to say this idea that we tested, this scientific experiment, grand scientific experiment of combining firefighting and vegetation management is not serving us. It was developed in a climate that we no longer live in. And this climate requires something different and something more. And that's what we found so many experts, especially Jack Cohen, who really pioneered this research on, you know, what's the next thing? If it's not the combination of vegetation management and firefighting alone, what is it? And what his research in the you know 90s um, till today really shows us is that a home out um, a home out strategy where we focus on building materials, home design first, then the first five feet around each homes, the structures we want to protect the most. That's that's where we need to move, you know. And and I thank all of the people who came before us and tested these theories, right? People went out and they did a lot of vegetation management. They did a lot of thinning. They did a lot of firefighting. We still do. We need those firefighters still. But we've tested this theory for 40 years. We've got to do the next thing. And that is what Elemental is about. That's what this film is all about. And the, and the numbers are shocking. Since 1983, there have been over 72,000 fires in the United States. And the 2018 wildfire season was the deadliest and most expensive in California history. That's just recently. Um, in fact, it was the most expensive natural disaster in the world that year in terms of insured losses. Um, total cost of the fire was something like $17 billion. So... What does that mean in terms of insurance? Yeah. So my background is pretty diverse. And years ago, I worked for the largest reinsurer in the world. And I've also worked in uh, corporate securities, venture finance, scrubbed business plans, looked at, looked at the math involved in business plans. And, um, and I think, you know, what Trip was just talking about plays into this for the insurance. Like, what does the insurance industry care about? And the research shows they care about the home itself. Is it ignitable or will it resist ember penetration? Because most homes ignite from wind-driven embers entering the attic or the crawl or igniting fine material in the gutter or igniting material next to the house, right? Or material that's near the house, the shrubbery within zero to five igniting and you know getting so hot it cracks a window or ignites a fence or ignites the siding, right? And then burns the structure down. So the insurance industry cares about zero to five feet and then five to 30, and then maybe somewhat beyond 30 if you have that kind of spacing between you and your neighbor. And they need a community 
that says, oh, we're firewise, they need that to be real in terms of 65, 75% of the folks in that community have done the things to their home versus thinking firefighters will come and put wet stuff on the red stuff or the problem is in the vegetation around our community, so we don't need to do anything. So the insurance industry is starting to exit California's new business, State Farm, Allstate, and farmers have announced these things over recent months. In fact, one of them did it kind of quietly last year, apparently. And this is because the insurance for the insurance world, called reinsurance, is no longer as available to them. This is because um, the communities, you know, most of the budgets have been spent on vegetation management, sometimes in and around the community but oftentimes far away from the community on fuel breaks. And when you have a wind-driven fire, it jumps right over it. Um, so I think the insurance industry is clearly signaling the way the public investments have been made for fire-safe communities um, are not delivering uh, reduced risks that make them want to offer premiums to people and insure those risks. The other things they've cited is, you know, the costs of rebuilding are enormous, uh, the cost in construction, so their overall liabilities, if they have risk and they have loss, is so huge. But like you mentioned, you know, um, in 17 and 18, those two years in California, the insurance industry uh, lost the equivalent of the last 26 years of profits times two. So it's not something they can sustain over time. And I think that's what's going on. So the question becomes for California, and for Oregon and all Western states, Colorado, what can we do to get ahead of this? And there actually are some communities that are really leading the way. It's been pretty awesome to be out there with the film and meet people from fire departments and uh, communities that are doing this. They're going out and they, they're assessing every home on a, a three-year, four-year, five-year rotation uh, for fire preparedness. They load it up into an application the homeowner gets that. It prioritizes what the homeowner can do. Many things, you don't have to hire a contractor. They're a weekend project. You just you know, need to deal with really a lot of the small stuff. You know, Just like in a relationship, the small stuff matters. So um, it's, it's really quite hopeful to see that we can prevent the humanitarian disasters, which are enormous and overwhelming. And what's great about it is regardless of your politics and whether you think his government is functional on certain things or not, you can get on it uh, yourself and you can get your middle schooler and high schooler involved. Well, you talked with people who've survived deadly fires. Uh, did they tell you that they were aware of the fire risk when they moved into the, the area? You know, most people were aware that there was a fire risk, but I think, you know, part of the point that, Ralph was making, and, and you mentioned as well, is that the, the fire situation has fundamentally changed. And it's, it's, you know, we can say it's changed over the last 30 or 40 years because we started to see a different signal in the 80s. But meaningfully, really, it has started changing in the last five or six years. Well, well, there's some of it is shocking. You begin your film with the harrowing escape from Paradise, California, as that town was ignited from windblown embers. It burned within a few hours of the fire's start. That's right. Yeah. And that was shocking. You know, I, I think, the, you know, the campfire was 2018. You know, it was five years ago at this point, but it's called the it campfire. Was so That's an ironic name. 
Yeah, right, right. I mean, it started near Paradise Camp and Creek, Campfire, both weird yep. names. Yes, yeah, a power line, <laughs> power line ignition that started near Camp Creek Road. It is funny how they name fires, you know, because it's just after whatever the the closest sort of name on a map is. And they don't know when they name it how significant it's going to be. I don't think that they knew when they named this fire that it was going to change the way the United States and the, really the entire world, uh, you know, of people who are focusing on this, think about fire. And we chose to start the film with this escape from paradise because mm. I think for so many people, fire professionals, people living in fire-prone landscapes, this became the thing that we can't let happen again, right? 19,000 structures, 86 lives, um, billions of, you know, tens of billions of dollars um, in damages. And it's, I, I think people were very surprised. And I think that on the one hand, you can say, well, you live in California in a rural area on the Sierra foothills. We knew that it was a fire prone landscape, but we really didn't know that that this, I mean, I think widely, we didn't know that this was possible. And the more I think about it and the more I look at the situation of so many other towns in California in Oregon and Colorado, I mean, even in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, just a few years earlier, you know, we saw hundreds of homes, thousands of homes burned. And so, I mean, there are, but there's the potential for many more paradises to happen. And so, you know, that's why we made this film. That's what I hope that people line. see this film and get ready and get prepared and lower their risk before those uh, inevitability happens. Didn't they write a song, Burn Down Paradise, Put Up a Parking Lot? Um, <laughs> you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Started at the bottom of the grass, hoping this fire doesn't catch a draft. The flames not slow, and they go so fast. It as it reaches the skies Maybe this burn really was not wise Everything it touches surely dies Forest fires will ignite Keep the burning glow I'm talking with Chip Jennings and Ralph Blomers about their new film, Elemental, Reimagined Wildfire from Journeyman Pictures, which is narrated by actor David Oyelowo, although uh, much of the narration is from the... uh, the people affected or involved in fighting the fires. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Ralph, before we get back to what's in the film, perhaps you can tell our audience how they can access it. Is it being shown in theaters or is it only online? Yeah, so we just went to streaming um, this week. So it's on Apple TV, Amazon, and Google Play, as well as Vimeo streaming. And, you know, up until this point, we did about 40 festivals and a couple hundred shows in theaters. We still have shows in theaters coming up um, in the West and overseas in London and Quito, Ecuador, um, and we'll be on broadcast in Canada. It uh, looks like, and in Belgium, possibly Germany, France, uh, we've made a shorter cut, and there's even interest from, of course, Australia, 
but also Korea. Um, and in England, you know, it's interesting, they had a bunch of fires last summer. So the interest in wildfire and whether you live in fire country or understanding what's going on is big. So we have um, a lot of visibility for the film because it's really relevant in people's lives. So yeah, elementalfilm.com, you can find both our shows. Uh, you can eventually, pretty soon, next couple of weeks, we'll have a pre-order for a DVD if, if you're still uh, wanting a DVD copy, and it's on streaming. So you can check it out right now. And Trip, isn't June a key to this story? Isn't it the height, the, the, uh, the month of the height of the fire season across North America and not just in the Western states? Well, you know, it's interesting. Each kind of location, each region has its own peak, right? So June in the Southwest United States is, uh, is one of the peaks. Um, there's often, um, you know, the biggest fires of the year happen, um, at that time, sometimes, you know, as, as much as Utah even, but, um, then we get, you know, then the fire season progresses and we start to get, uh, drier and drier in the, Northwest and in California, um, while the monsoon season starts usually in the Southwest, right? So as their fire season is hopefully ramping down because they're getting water and rain, we're ramping up where we are in Oregon across the West coast. Um, and then we get, you know, Oregon Northwest peak is tends to be August, um, into early September. And then we get on the West coast, these East winds that blow hot, dry air, and that's when we get really extreme fires. And we've seen that starting in September into October and November even. Um, and then, you know, we get these fascinating and really scary occasional cold, cold weather droughts like we saw in Colorado a few years ago that burned, um, you know, in, entire subdivisions uh, in Boulder County, Colorado. And so... Um, what we're seeing, and this is a really difficult, uh, I think, challenge for fire managers, is we're seeing this expanded fire season that's, uh, you know, across the country. I mean, you know, we just mentioned months from, from December and January all the way through the summer into the fall. Um, and so I, I think that's what we're seeing as the climate warms, as uh, we, we get these longer periods between rain. Um, fire season becomes nearly year-round. What role have Pacific Ocean currents played in this story? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question, right? So um, there's a, a handful of different answers, right? So during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we did have this cool, wet period that um, came from the Pacific Decadal Oscillation that we talked about earlier, bringing rain um, more rain and cooler temperatures to a lot of the Northwest and some of the West. Right. Um, and that still oscillates. We still get these warmer and cooler, wetter and drier periods. Um, so that's still going. We had a dry, uh, a, a wetter one, excuse me, in the Northwest in 2012. So even during this sort of ramp up, we had a very low fire season um, that year and uh, really helped out fire managers. But layered on top of that, of course, we have this longer term sort of secular trend of climate change. Um, and so even with those oscillations of, you know, we get these breaks in cool, wet 
from cool wet weather, it's still on top of this sort of constantly escalating um, warming and longer periods of dryness. On top of that, we're about to get El Nino, or we're in El Nino, um, which generally means a hotter, um, you know, globe, hotter temperatures uh, internationally. Sometimes it even means a bit more uh, water in the southern parts of the country, California, hopefully. But I think the thing to remember, right, is even with all of this oscillation, we have all this oscillation, but we're sort of walking up a staircase, if you will, right? We have this jump in temperature, which often leads to a jump in fire, and then it planes off for a few years, and then we have a jump. And so what I'm really worried about, and we saw this huge jump in 2017, 2018. And what I'm really hoping we can do is prepare enough homes and communities before we get that sort of next stair step up to a new level of, you know, hotter, drier conditions and potentially um, more extreme fire seasons. Wasn't drought a factor in the town of Paradise's fire? Yeah. Oh, huge factor. I mean... There are basically there are basically three factors in every fire that destroys homes and communities. One is drought. It's got to be low humidity, um, and it's got to be a little while since it's rained. Um, that can happen, you know, it, relatively quickly in the West because we get these very hot, very dry summers, right? So even if we just had a big wet winter, um, and that's, you know, this is true uh, on the East Coast as well. Even if you've had sort of recent um, rain in the past few months, shifting to a dry period for just a couple, three months um, can really dry things out. And you combine that with wind, which fans, you know, provides oxygen and provides a, a way for the fire to move quickly, then all you need is the third thing, which is an ignition, right? And so, yes, with which almost be lightning, but the lightning usually comes with rain. Yeah, it doesn't always come with rain. Um, and even when it does, sometimes you can get ignitions. But 80%, more than 80% of fires uh, these days are started by people. So hmm. that could be someone running a chainsaw. It could be someone you know, a, a flat tire on a trailer um, that a someone's match, pulling. Dropping a, a lit cigarette or a match on in the grass? Absolutely. Lit cigarettes, um, you know, tossing a butt out the window for sure is, is one of the um, igniters. But what we see a lot, especially in the wind events, is we see power line ignitions. And um, that's, you know, there's so many destructive fires that have started um, by power line ignitions. In fact, there was just a really important recent um, court decision about the fault in Oregon fires in 2020 that uh, I wonder if you want to talk about, Ralph. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I think that um, I'll just say a little bit about... Well, Ralph, you've been working for nearly two decades on issues of wildfire and community safety, so you've yeah. been following this story uh, for a long time. Yeah, you know... Um, the human caused ignitions, uh, you know, they can happen at a time where we can put them out, but they also can happen at a time when we can't. Um, so we saw in Oregon over a million acres of fire perimeters, right? So within those perimeters, some areas are not burned, some are burned, et cetera. 
and they draw these lines around them when they're done. But we had over a million acres, multiple ignitions, dozens across the state in various locations from tree branches hitting on insulated lines, transformers popping, arcing, sparking. And these additional ignitions, you know, overwhelmed firefighting response and it led to a lot of additional loss. So it's a big deal. Now we can't bury all these power lines. We can't even afford to replace them with insulated lines because it's a million to three million a mile-ish to do so. And we got in California and high-risk areas, 40,000 miles of uninsulated line. Uh, you're talking trillions of dollars. So we really need to do public safety power shutoffs, which is what we've started to do here in Oregon. Um, and so it's living and being ready to not have power as well as living with smoke. Um, I think, you know, I think the thing that's interesting about the climate, right, we know these landscapes have always had big fire. And as the climate changes, it's just going to amplify that. And what Trip is sharing is it amplifies it at two ends. One is you get a lot of snowpack and a lot of rain sometimes in the winter. Sometimes we don't. We might have a droughty winter. We get a long extended period uh, of drought because the atmosphere at higher temperatures can hold a lot more moisture before it says, I'm going to let this go in the form of rain. But interestingly, you know, after 17 and 18 in Oregon, we had 2019, we had inter intermittent rain all summer and we had a chill summer with very little fire. And then 2020, we had a huge winter, everything greened up and then it dried out and we didn't have rain for a long, long time. And then we had a wind event. And if we wouldn't have had a bunch of power line ignitions, it would have been a totally different story in Oregon. Maybe we would have had a couple hundred thousand acres of fire. But instead we had, you know, a million acres. So um, I think it's, you know, kind of three things that we have to think about. Prepare our homes, so they reduce the chances they ignite because rebuilding communities is crazy and expensive and mostly doesn't happen. Two, you know, try to really seriously reduce human caused ignitions, particularly during wind events. That would be power line ignitions. And three, you know, prepare communities so they're resilient for smoke because we're going to be and Canada is going to be sending more smoke your way, New York. Um, and we can't do anything to prevent that. And anybody who promises you less smoke is feeling feeding you a bill of goods, uh, trying to sell you something that they can't deliver on. So I think, though, it's good to just know that you have to accept that and tolerate that. I mean, these are big global events, right? When we had uh, the volcano Krakatoa blow up in the 1700s, it sent ash in the air that ended up in New England that led, you know, Albert Bierstadt to have some beautiful sunsets to paint. Um, the, you know, these are, these are events that are global in scope and these disturbances uh, and these fire events are things that we, there's things that we can do to live with them. Um, and I think that's the good news that's in the film. So hopefully folks will see that it's not only beautiful to watch, but that there's some good medicine in there um, for them I that guess, they'll, they'll appreciate. My guests on today's show are the creators of a new film called Elemental, Reimagine Wildfire. It's co-writers, uh, producer Ralph Plummers, director uh, 
and filmmaker Trip Jennings. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So you've mentioned a number of the factors uh, that uh, have led to a lot of the wildfires. But what about the fact that, what about logging and, and timber production? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things, one of the myths that we take on um, in the film is this idea that, you know, we hear kind of every, every time there's big fires. Well, you know, if we were able to, if we were able to lift environmental restriction or protections um, uh, on our forests and do more, you know, sort of timber industry um, style logging. So often that's in them out. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, we hear a couple of this. So there's two things, right? One is we need to do more logging in order to make ourselves safer. And what we found in the film is that, and, and you know, in interviewing folks and looking at the science, is that industrial timber production itself, while it's important, like we need um, forest products to build homes um, and do all the other great things that we do with it. Uh, but that, makes us actually, or at least it increases the severity of fire within those perimeters, right? So we really found that this, this myth that if we do more industrial timber production, it'll decrease fire severity, fire intensity. That's not true. That's a myth. Um, however, so, so then there's this, well, I guess the other side of uh, the vegetation management, right, is thin the forests, um, keep, uh, you know, keep, pull out trees um, that might burn, right? And, and what we overwhelmingly find is very clear evidence um, connecting vegetation management that's very, very close to your house as being effective, right? So within five feet, 30 feet of your house. But farther than 30 to a hundred feet from your house, we really find very little impact, um, on whether or not your home burns down. So, um, you know, thinning can be logging. We can pull out, um, trees that are useful and have some market value. Often it's pulling out smaller trees. Um, so we think of that as like, I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Fuels management, forest management is often what you hear in the news. Um, but if that's happening more than a hundred feet from the structure that you want to protect, it's really having little to no effect on whether or not structure burns down. Um, and that's, I think one of the most important shifts that we need to think about, right? Is let's, we, you know, we can have a conversation about what we should do in the forest, how we get the forest products we need, um, what the best thing is for the forest, but that is almost always separate from a conversation about how we keep our homes and communities safe from wildfire. And that's really what we wanted to um, talk about in the film and, and get out there in the film is like, let's prioritize on the things that are our priorities. We want to keep our families safe. We want to keep our memories and our investment in our homes safe. And that we found, you know, focus on the home out to five feet, out to 30 feet, out to a hundred feet max. What about yep. the age of the, the forest and the kinds of trees that are in it? Whenever we see news stories about forest fires in, in, on, on the East Coast, they always show these destroyed sequoias. Yeah. 
Yeah, thanks for asking about that. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you see a plume of smoke come up, people think, you know, everything burned up. And right? also and chaparrales. What about the chaparrales? Forgive me for interjecting that, but we're running out of time. Yeah, I, I can hit that. I mean, there's so many different ecosystems. So in California, there's a shrub ecosystem that's dominated by chaparral. You know, those are frankly burning too frequently. There's too many human-caused ignitions. And in some cases, they're converting to a different ecosystem or really just fields of invasive species like cheatgrass. Um, so those, you know, did burn historically, but not as frequently as they're burning. Um, and they are, they are changing. But Western Cascade, let's say in Oregon, Washington, you know, temperate coastal rainforests and mountain rainforests, those burned at high severity, at moderate, moderate severity, and a small amount of the carbon goes up when they burn, uh, somewhere between 5-10%, sometimes even as little as 2%. Most of what's in a plume is actually a lot of water vapor, whatever water remains, plus particle. Um, but the big stuff stays there. And the big stuff shades the forest floor. It stands for a long time. The tops might break off. They create microclimates for the forest to come back. Um, and pretty quickly in Oregon, you know, it's a jungle uh, underneath in the high severity patches. Um, and there are seed sources everywhere. Now, there are some places where there's very large fires and there's concern that there isn't enough seed source and that the birds won't adequately spread it or if you're followed up by a bunch of droughty years after a big hot fire, uh, you might, you know, it might take a little bit longer for it to come back and it might convert to something else. So there's a lot going on depending on the ecosystem you're talking about, whether it's a high elevation alpine rocky mountain thing or whether it's a chaparral in Southern California. So I appreciate your curiosity about that. And, you know, unfortunately, in an hour and 25 minute film, we can't unpack all the different ecosystem types. But I think, you know, the, the, the thing I like to say is like, look, forest management can affect fire behavior positively, negatively or not at all in extreme conditions. And, you know, what we do out there, though, it's such a vast area that the notion that we can be in control of fire by controlling vegetation in advance, hmm. that's addressed in the film. It's an ocean of vegetation and it grows back. And so the question becomes, where do we prioritize what we can do with the available money that we have over space and time? Because just $5 billion maybe gets you uh, some vegetation management on Two million, two and a half million, maybe only a million acres, because it's somewhere between two thousand and four thousand bucks an acre. So we it's a lot a of money you can spend for really low probability, low odds of having an impact. And so we try to compare and contrast that, but also unpack that piece you're asking about, which is what's happening in the forest, the carbon, uh, the recovery, the regeneration. And, you know, the media, frankly, presents a lot of doom and gloom uh, moonscape pictures right after the fire. They don't spend the five years we did uh, setting up time lapse cameras and trying to capture that. And really what we tried to do is show people, not tell them like we're doing it on your radio program. So I really encourage folks to watch the film and see for themselves. And also if they get an opportunity to go go for a ramble in a burned forest. 
Again, how can they access it? Because we're pretty much out of time. Okay. Um, they can go to uh, Amazon, um, Apple TV, uh, Google Play, and Vimeo. Um, it's streaming on all those platforms right now. Go to our website at elementalfilm.com and just click watch now. The links are all there. Um, and uh, yeah, we really hope you check it out. Uh, I wanted to just add, you know, that when we think about fire, it is often, you know, caused in some uh, significant um, ways by climate change, but it doesn't necessarily cause climate change. More and more research is coming out showing that that smoke that we see, um, it's not good for us. It does have particulate matter in it, but so much of the carbon stays in the forest. We have to leave it there. And my great thanks to Trip Jennings, whose films have won dozens of awards around the world, have aired on major networks all, all over. And he's the producer of the PBS digital series Weathered. Uh, and Ralph Bloomers, who for nearly two decades has worked on wildfire and community safety. Uh, uh, the film that we've been discussing is called Elemental Reimagine Wildfire. It's from Journeyman Pictures and narrated by David Oyelowo. Thank you again, gentlemen. Thanks so much for having us. Really fun conversation. And that yeah. brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archive of over 800 shows on WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else podcasts are available. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is Leonard Lopate at WBAI.org. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique index content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's WBAI.org Give to WBAI.org, the number 2 or 212-209-2950 You might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy for 10 15 20 $25 whatever you're comfortable with um, it, uh, for as long as you're willing to do it and it allows us to plan for the future. We offer a BAI took back to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Either way, I hope you'll do that right now. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Roland Rich will discuss his book, The United Nations as Leviathan. We'll see you then. 